BioChats, a podcast by Apple and Technology. My name is Ken Lum, and with this podcast, we aim to familiarize you with not only Apple's contributions to efforts in scientific discovery, but also to highlight the direction of ongoing research and help scientists determine how to best leverage their skills to improve global human health and quality of life. Join me today in welcoming Philip Liu. PhD. He is the Director of Research and Development for the Immunology Department at Immunity Bio. How are you doing, Phil? Doing good, Ken. How are you doing? We literally have not seen each other since we graduated from UC Berkeley uh, all those years ago. I think you've had a very exciting life in between then and now. You're with a startup. You had done some interesting research with UCLA. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about why you like science and why you decided to do what it is you're doing now. Where does my love of science come from, I think, is the core issue for a lot of scientists. Like, why do we do this, right? It's a, it's a tough road. You and I both know it's, a, it's not an easy road to walk. So, so there must be some reason we want to do this. For me, it, it kind of stemmed back to when I was in high school. So my father actually came down with a case of hepatitis B. At the time, no treatment. He was put on a clinical trial for interferon to treat his hepatitis. And, you know, it was it was rough. It was a rough treatment, but it, it saved his life. And that kind of really shook me to really think about how one contributes to the medical field the most. You know, you could be a doctor and see, let's just conservatively say 100,000 patients in your career or you can go into research, discover new medicine and save millions, right? So that, that's kind of what drove me to the research path. Now, of course, I would also have to mention my dad is a scientist as well. He has his PhD uh, in genetics from University of Wisconsin. So it's not outside of the realm of my family lineage to, to go into science. So, so that, that's kind of the, the inspiration behind you know, why I do what I do. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, like my parents were immigrants from Hong Kong. They never actually finished college. So I would be the number one college-bound person an actual graduate in my family, which is kind of a weird legacy because like for me, science was just, you know, when you were a kid, you were like, I'm going to hunt dinosaurs and then I'm going to go to NASA and become an astronaut. And then you realize, well, I probably can't qualify for that, but I really like <laughs> biology. So that's what I'll do. And I think we we met both uh, tutoring for the Student Learning Center. And I th- guess I should thank you for your help getting through that genetics course, because uh, I, I can't think genetics. Like I, my <laughs> range is basically Punnett squares and pedigrees and maybe some map distances. And then, you know, I don't know what a tetrad is. I don't know how <laughs> C. elegans works, uh, but yeah, you, you helped a lot and I appreciate that. So yeah, we both graduated at the same time and I think we actually both interviewed at UCLA uh, together. We did. But uh, you ended up going. I went to Duke and then I kind of stopped for a while and then I went to the University of Chicago after you had graduated and you started your own path. So let me know a little bit about like, you know, do you do a postdoc and then go into research professorship? What's going on? Yeah. So that that's a that was an interesting path I took. Actually, I wouldn't call it standard. So you're right. I, I did go to UCLA. Uh, we did interview together. And if it makes you feel any better, I don't remember anything from genetics either. That was a tough class. That was a really hard class, right? I don't remember anything. But um, so, so I went to UCLA, I got my PhD in the laboratory of Dr. Robert Maudlin. So, you know, I studied the human immune system 
in using leprosy and tuberculosis as models of macrophage antimicrobial response. Now, when I graduated there, I didn't want to go to a mouse lab. I just kind of want to stay in human immune system. We, we kind of took this disease-centric approach. You start with the disease and you work your way back, not the other way where you take a knockout mouse, which is, this is a, a lot of people did stuff like this. You take a knockout mouse, you start looking for phenotypes and then you, you try to fit it to a disease. So I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do it the other way. And there aren't that many good disease-centric human immune labs out there. So I stayed. And, and that, that a lot of people felt that that approach hinders you in the long run where you stay in the same lab that you got your PhD from. So, so I, I did do that. Ultimately, I didn't feel like it, that aspect held me back. I did end up finishing a postdoc there. It took about five years and I ended up getting a faculty position at UCLA. During that time, I, you know, I got a K-22 grant. I got, I was part of a, a co-PIR1, you know, I, I did the, uh, I was part of a program project. So, so those things, and, and I never got that comment was, like, well, this guy stayed in his, his uh, thesis lab, so he's no good. So I never got that comment, but the issue was funding. You know, that was at a time where the NIH had historically low funding. You know, all of our grants are coming back with great comments, but just never quite great enough to get the money. It, that stress just kind of wore me out. You know, it's just a little too much. I gave it a couple of years in the in the professor track, just didn't didn't really see the path. My, actually, one of my ex lab mates who was a CSO at the time of a company called NatBio basically said, "Hey, why don't you come work for us?" And here I am. The the way funding works is it like one cycle or two cycles per year? Because I never actually received funding beyond my T32 grant for, for graduate training. And after that, I was just like, I don't want to work in the lab anymore. I still like science, but yeah, I, I was just wondering how the funding mechanism works when you attempt to get like an R01 or any NSF grant or whatever. Honestly, I, I wish I could remember the exact details, but I, I tend to block that time period out of my mind. But I think it's <laughs> it, it's three cycles. I think uh, you know you never make the second. You know you get you s submit your grant, it gets reviewed, get your comments back, and you have to address those. You'll never make it to the next cycle. You know it, it, there's just not enough time, and you end up skipping one and 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 going in. I think at the time it was a three three review system, and yeah, that that's that's it. And then you get a number, and then you just breathlessly await for the uh, NIH budget to be approved. And during that time, we're always under what they call continuing resolution, which is the NIH would get the same amount of money that they got the previous year with no adjustment for inflation. So it was just a, a bad situation. Then the NIH would say, okay, well, we don't have that much money. So, you know, we're going to give the, the already ongoing grants their money and then new grants would just kind of wait and see. So that was kind of the process. And, uh, it was a lot of waiting and seeing without a lot of cash out, so to speak. And uh, yeah, it was just, uh, it was a stressful time for, I think, young academics. Yeah, and I imagine that's the impetus for a lot of them to just go into industry because the industries are always well-funded. Meanwhile, you know, academia is lacking for those minds who aren't necessarily at like the top institutions, the Ivy Leagues, the Stanfords or whatever, or the big names. Like, you, you, you know, when we went to college, like we had professors who eventually won Nobel Prizes, like Jim Allison left and went right. to like Memorial. Randy Sheckman's still there and he, he's a big proponent of public funding. Did you have uh, Bertozzi? I think it might have been Bertozzi. <laughs> yeah, she so was ago. wonderful. And then she left for Stanford because the non-public schools usually just have more money. And oh, that yeah. kind of sucks for us. But, you know, we we had a great education. And 
I'm just thinking of like all the awesome time we had with people who they came before us. They're they're more established. They're able to reap the rewards. And then what is left for the new guys? You know, very little, unfortunately. So you have to get like incredibly lucky. Like there was an Ig Nobel just this past year that was saying, hey, it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and yeah, the the move to private institutions was huge. You know, while I was at UCLA, you know, another career path I considered was going to, uh, God forbid, USC. No offense to all the the Trojans out there, but you know, I was a UCLA kid, you know, for a long time, and and you know, they had money, and UCLA just didn't have that money to give, you know, startups or or cover salary, and and it, it crossed my mind. But going to the company now, Muni Bio. It was actually founded by Patrick Sunshung. He made a lot of money for with a drug named Abraxane and then spun off this company. It was called NatBio at the time. We've changed names a couple of times, but you know, they had something that really interested me. They had this uh, IL-15 super agonist. And uh, I had just come off of a lab where we study a lot of these type of immune modulating cytokines, IL-15, especially one of them. So there was a lot of work here that interested me. And, and I, I didn't feel like I was giving up my academic dream either. You know, like, you know, there's something pure about academic science where it's just for the sake of knowledge. And then you go to a company, and, you know, it's always, how does this relate to our product? Or how does this become a product to go to market? Here, it's actually a very interesting mix of a little bit of both. It's not as product driven, but it's also not completely for the sake of knowledge. So it's a it's a good mix. But part of me does still miss academics a little bit. So I imagine you, as a startup, you guys have a lot of freedom to explore. Like you, you probably have, still have that flagship product or therapeutic path, but you have other things as well besides the IL-15 uh, super agonist that you just mentioned. This company is actually very unique in that, you know, on paper, yeah, it is a startup. It doesn't have a product that that's currently on the market making money. It's it's with the FDA right now. We, we submitted the BLA and it, it's being reviewed. We're unlike a startup in the resources that we have. The the company is somewhat stealth mode, but we have huge multiple GMP manufacturing facilities. You know, we have a lot of capability to do and explore a lot of things in the pipeline that I think it go beyond your standard startup, which is really banking on that one lead therapy or or compound. We have many. So it's a fun place to be as an R and D, you know, scientist. Because you have all that funding, you have all the freedom. It, this is very much like what would happen if you were in like a Howard Hughes lab. You know, you, you have all the base R01, you have the Hughes money, you probably have like people throwing money at you to go to seminars. Not not that you would because you're you're in a company, but yeah, it's it sounds like you're in a much better situation than if you had tried to get it out in academia. It's not like you know, it's bad for academia. Like I talked to my friend Ron about this. He he was in my thesis lab at the University of Chicago. And just thinking of like how academia is going to persist and be attractive to more bright minds who are able to contribute ideas, but they might not necessarily have the resources or the gumption to just continue in the postdoc and then like apply for faculty positions and try to get through the process that you yourself experience. So what do you think the future of academia will be like because someone has to generate all those PhDs, but who's going to do it? Dude, that that is such a good question. And, and actually, it's it's also one that I've kind of contemplated because I, I kind of seen. So, you know, my dad, again, is in, in the science field, right? He had, he started a biotech company, uh, several biotech companies way back or worked with them, you know, and I kind of seen seen it grow up, meaning the industry 
and then also been in academics. So I kind of see it all. And, and I feel like there's been a huge shift, especially during the whole checkpoint inhibitor, CAR T cell, you know, cell therapy and stuff like that. In the past, academics used to do the research, find a target or find a biomarker or something along those lines. And then that was published and then industry would go after it, you know, small molecule screens or, or even, you know, uh, more intelligent design type stuff. And they would just kind of piggyback off of that. But now it's like, I don't know how many academic labs have the stomach or the capability for that matter to even do like a trial for, for a cell-based therapy, right? That, that's just, it's, the scale is too big. You know, you're really partnering with pharma to be able to do that. And I think now in a way, pharma is more leading the way in these type of therapies. And, you know, we're lo looking at a lot more combo therapies now. It's not just a single agent. You, you have a cancer, here is a chemo. You know, now you're talking about checkpoint inhibitors. You're talking about, you know, CAR T cells. You're, you're going you're gonna to see a lot of different things come out of the, the pipeline. Uh, yeah, I don't, how does academic persist? I think they, the funding model has to change is really what it is. I think the Howard Hughes kind of mentality was, was a little better. And then they, remember, I don't know if they did this everywhere, but at UCLA, they changed them to, to institutes, right? So, so they would give money to the university and the university kind of picked their top people to receive the funding and operate like a like a research institute almost that had funding and i feel like that that's a better way so you're not just handing all your 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 research dollars to just one guy right so you, you can you can support young people with with fresh ideas but collaboration i think is key you know for academics to persist they have to start working with each other they, they have to start creating consortiums that are big enough to really kind of play in that field that that pharma has, you know, their combined resources is what what will keep it alive. But at least in the past, I've been out of academics for a while, but in the past, that was not a thing. People wouldn't want to because, you know, their data is sacred. Their publications are what they need to move on, you know, and they don't want to be scooped. And I, I think it's you're going to start seeing papers, big papers with more and more names on it. That's just the only way this is going to work. Yeah, I thought I saw something like that. Even when I went back to graduate school in like 2006, like the ENCODE paper had just come out and there were like 500 <laughs> names in that author list. It's like crazy. I, yeah. I might have been exaggerating. I might have been like closer to 70, but it, the entire first couple of pages was authors and their uh, affiliations, which was great because you're talking about a really detailed map of the entire human genome and the way it's right. being transcribed, right? Can you tell me a little bit about like how IL-15 works? Is it's a pro-inflammatory, right? Cytokine. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's more on the inflammatory axis. Yeah, so it has a lot of activities. It, it has effects on T cells, so it boosts the T cell activation, proliferation, and all that. It activates NK cells. It also, and, and this is not something that we kind of touch on in the company, but this is more my previous work in academics. It also activates macrophages to to uh, elicit this antimicrobial pathway. It's, this is a drug we're, we're very proud of. We th see a lot of potential for it. So it's a uh, IL-15 super agonist. So it is a uh, fusion molecule, kind of has this uh, receptor uh, subunit, and then the, the cytokines attached to it. It's all uh, fused onto an IG molecule. And right now, we the BLA that the indication that the BLA uh, is applying for is BCG non-responsive bladder cancer. So it's it's an issue. Obviously, BCG is is a is a great treatment for bladder cancer. But if you're non-responsive, you really have not too many options. But we get a really good response rate, and uh, you know we have high hopes for this, and we have a lot of trials kind of going in there looking for other indications to use this for. So. 
you know, hoping to see this drug out there. I think it, it's it's going to be a companion drug to a lot of immune modulating therapies. It, it does really good things for your T cells. You know, you know, we we we're, we're hopeful. Could you clarify what you mean by BCG? Ah, yeah. So BCG is the cow version, one of the cow versions of uh-huh. uh, tuberculosis that was used as a vaccine, actually, for tuberculosis. It's actually not a great vaccine for tuberculosis, but it does. Elicit immune responses. Obviously, it's a bacteria, right? So mm. it's going to activate toll-like receptors and do all that. So I don't know the full history of how BCG came to be used for cancer. By trade, I'm a I'm an antimicrobial immunologist, right? So I, I I studied macrophage responses to tuberculosis and leprosy. Mm-hmm. So you know I, I I'm not as up on the history as I should be, but uh, it it does great in cancer. You know they they inject it into people who have bladder cancer and the cancer goes away. So you know, that's probably just because it, you're revving up that immune response, uh, the immune system that's already there, and the immune system takes care of it, right? So, but yeah, pe- some people, that doesn't work. And you throw in a little bit of a sprinkle in a little bit of our uh, product, it kind of turns it around. I think that immune system wakes up, and 71% uh, of mm-hmm. the non- non-responsive patients will respond. And uh, well, That's a pretty uh, good rate. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, complete response, uh, median duration of 26.6 months. So, you know, that that's it's it's really good. And, and, and again, we're, we have trials with all different kinds of indications looking to see where we where it could best be deployed. So, you know, we will hopefully be seeing more and more of it down the line, but this is the first. But that's over two years, and I assume you guys are continuing to track uh, patients through five, ten years as long as yeah. the drug is. But that that's pretty cool. Like, I think you said it was like a chimeric or a fusion molecule, and that makes sense. Like, uh, there there were a couple articles I was reading about how you wanted to fine-tune the, the body's neutrophil response to attack cancers. And that's kind of the holy grail, right? Stop the immune checkpoints, make sure that the tumor can't stop your immune system. The immune system looks at that and says, hey, you're you're a cancer. Don't be here anymore. And then they start attacking. <laughs> uh, this probably leads to a whole host of like autoimmune-like issues. But uh, you guys haven't seen anything like that, huh? No, we haven't, actually. Uh, that's great. The, the yeah. side effects are are low, which is incredible. So, so yeah, what you're outlining is essentially the, the difficulty treating cancer, right? Cancer... Is is yourself, you know, and, and your immune system is is very well suited to not kill yourself, right? Uh, other than in in the situation of autoimmune disease, and that's when it's when it's failing that part. And you know, we're we're basically finding ways to, to allow it to kill itself if it can recognize that that tumor is not fully self. You know, the the tumors do have mutations. There are neoantigens in there that the immune system can go after, but they're minor. You know, that, that's that's a very small amount of, of antigens on that surface of the tumor. So, you know, to, to be able to kind of get that response is the holy grail of immune, immunotherapy to cancer. I mean, if you can train your immune system to do it, you're going to be much better off. You know, maybe you have some advice to folks who are considering their career path, whether they decide to remain in academia, trying to just not get bogged down by the 95.7% failure rate of all your experiments over X number of years and, you know, getting funding. You got to love what you do. That's, that's the first step. At the time, my kids were very young. Uh, I was applying for grants. You know, I was running a lab. I would stay after everybody went to sleep in the house, you know, I'd be up from, I don't know, 10 to 2 a.m., you know, reading papers, working on grants, and then, you know, wake up at six to take the kids to school. And that, that's a drag, man. It's it's hard. And and if it wasn't because I I, I love to do science, you know, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to get through it for sure. So, you know, it doesn't matter what you choose, you know, if you want to go into 
to industry if you want to stay in academics you got to first step is love what you do if you choose to stay in academics to get funding which is the name of the game for an academic right you got to get that funding you got to get that money i think really really what you have to do is you have to talk to people you have to find out what is it that people and by people i mean the community you know whatever community you're in if you're researching cancer if you're researching you know tuberculosis flu whatever it is you have to go to conferences talk to people find out what people want to know find out what they want to see from a research project i think that was my biggest mistake i i felt like i know i felt like i knew what the field wanted and i wrote a grant to say this is what you need while that that is honorable in a way but it doesn't it doesn't work as well at the end because they will have their comments like i think you're right but i think you should do this instead and, and it, it kind of makes it a lot more difficult to navigate comments and navigate the grant writing situation and you you have your study section members are reviewing it and they're the same people you're talking to at the conference and they basically tell you what they're looking for right so really get out there and talk you know i was i was more in my own mind coming up with the science where i i feel like science is now as i'm older I'm looking back, science is more of a collaborative game, right? It's a, it's a, it's a team sport. And as academics, sometimes we forget that. And, and really, you know, you have to be a part of that team, I think is, is my best advice to, to young aspiring uh, academics. And just apply, apply, just keep throwing your ideas on paper and just keep sending them in. Don't, don't get discouraged, you know, just keep doing it. Just get the net, right network, the right uh, support structure and hopefully recruit the right people into your lab uh, oh, to oh. help you go all the way. Yeah. Excellent point. Yeah. Having the right people in your lab, people that believe in what you do, people that believe in you is, is critical. The first person I hired was a technician named Elliot and Elliot was a workhorse and he, he produced so much data and we, we published papers together. And if it wasn't for his effort early on at that critical stage of starting a lab, yeah, I don't know that I would last it even that long. If you don't have that person that, that says, you know, I'm here on, I'm here with you on this ride and it's not going to happen. But I think it, it's to get that relationship, it has to be flipped. It, the, the situation also has to be flipped. You as a, as a PI, as the, the leader of a lab have to believe in them as well, right? You, you have to, you have to be there for them. You have to let them know I got your back. You know, I hope I did that, you know, for my people and uh, I, I try. People always come first for me. Even now, you know, I, I, I always make sure that the, the people that work with me are, are, are the priority. Yeah, I, th I think that that really helps having people believe even in your vision as well. Where can we find your company's website? Ah, yes. Go to www.immunitybio.com. I M M one word. Yep. I M M U N I T Y B I O dot com. That will get you to that homepage. But if you really want to see what's going on, we have a uh, investor relations. All of our latest press releases are posted up there and you can see what's going on. This is a uh, very exciting. I'm glad that you're doing something that you love and glad that the family is doing well. Actually, yeah, I'd love to chat some more. I want to know what you're doing. When we graduate college, what you're doing now was not a job. You know, that didn't content yeah. creating wasn't a thing. So I'd love to hear what you do. I've read some of your blogs and I, I think they're really cool. I could hear your voice and your cadence as you're writing them, which is really cool. I, you know, uh, it's, it's very authentic and I, I enjoy reading them. So, you know, I, I'd love to find out what you're doing right now. 
So Avclonal was a Chinese company. They're trying to make inroads in North and South America, as well as Europe and uh, Australia. There's a global expansion, very successful in China. So what we're trying to do is expand the footprint by engaging customers and prospective customers and just people who enjoy reading about science and learning about science. And this is just one of the mediums to do so. So I do make a lot of the cadences that you read in emails, if you've ever gotten one of our cold emails. I do a lot of the copy in the social media, uh, not so much on Twitter anymore because, you know, things, but uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely LinkedIn. You'll, you'll see a lot of it there. And I'm just like, well, I have a lot of friends. They're very smart. I should talk to them. And one of them happened to be you. So <laughs> thank, you. thank you. I appreciate that. I, I do appreciate you thinking about me for this. It's it, it's fun. I, uh, I really do feel like uh, it's a new era, right? Social media marketing is a is a big thing, and I, I'm I'm just fascinated that this is a career path, and and it'd be interesting to hear you talk about it one day. You know, like uh, you yeah. know, how how you how you do what you do. I think it, it it's really cool. Yeah, definitely subscribe to the podcast, and uh, yeah, thank you again for hanging out with me, Phil. Yeah, thank yeah. you. All right, we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk good luck with everything. Again. All right, thank Absolutely. you. You too. This has been a conversation with Philip Liu, and we hope you join us again next time when we will explore another exciting topic about bioscience research and careers. BioChat is a production of AppClonal Technology, hosted and edited by myself, Ken Lung. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts and follow us on social media. You can find our various socials in the show notes link to Dr. Beaker's page on AppClonal.com. Or you can also find our vast catalog of biological reagents and services. If you wish to contact the podcast directly for an interview opportunity or to inquire about AppClonal's quality products and services, please send a message to service at AppClonal.com. Thanks for listening, and we will see you on the next episode.